there were people, and I didn't know you, odd as that seems. I mean, there, there are a handful of really key figures in my life who I didn't know, which I often say to people that are younger than me that are struggling. Like, my life's changed quite a bit between 35 and 40. So if you're 24 and you think everything's fucked... It sounds patronising, but there's so much to come. There's so much to come. You know, you never stop meeting people who change you and change your life. But even then, I was never properly as alone as the character feels in the novel because I did have a couple of extremely loyal and long-standing friends. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out. Mopad. How to do it's 2021 it's the first episode of the new year so it's time for what has become a treasure tradition we reflect over the past year and the coming year with comedian mark watson mark is not just a comedian of course he's a friend of the podcast but also a close friend of mine Last year, we recorded the New Year's episode sitting in his guest bedroom on New Year's Eve, dressed in a goat and an elephant costume, because we were spending the evening with his children and partner, of course, but the dressing up thing was probably mostly for the kids. This year, things are slightly different. Uh, As far as I can understand, COVID in the UK has currently never been worse We are in tier four lockdown in London. Mark is my bubble, meaning that for the past 10 months, I've only been in the same room with him, his girlfriend, who's fortunately also my friend, Leanne, and his children. So strangely, this episode of Mopad is the first face-to-face episode I've recorded since before March last year, which might also be why the recording equipment failed me. So If you hear a slight change in the sound, it's because we've had to temporarily switch to a backup recording for a bit. Sat in my kitchen opposite one another, him with a glass of red wine, me with a glass of Baileys, Mark Watson and I talked about the year of 2020. In the next episode, we will talk about the year of 2021. I really liked our chat. My dog Hank does some snoring and even some barking at times, which you're probably used to by now. But Mark was in a good mood, and so was I, after having spent the entire day cleaning and decluttering and reorganizing, all so that I can get ready for a new year where I, you know, better myself, whatever that means. Do enjoy this first part of a traditional New Year's two-parter with the wonderful Mark Watson. It is the second day of the new year, 2021. It's the, um, uh, well, I was going to say early evening of that day, which is true, but it's very dark outside, of course. It's um, already an hour after dark. Um, I'm sitting in the kitchen of Sophie Hagen, which a year ago wouldn't have seemed like a strange thing to do. But these days, it's pretty strange to be in anybody's house apart from your own, of course. And this is only possible because of the um, bubble rules. Um, various things have changed since we're talking about context from last year well last year and the previous year these chats were conducted in my house but also Sophie is in a new house relatively new uh, and has a dog as well but both of these things are new from last time we did the podcast together and uh, 
again, to make sure that the fullest possible context is provided. The dog uh, is kind of sniffing around me in a fairly leisurely way. The first couple of times I met him, you wouldn't call it leisurely. He really, um, uh, he energetically inspected every inch of me, but he does seem to be getting to know me now. And, uh, but nonetheless, every now and again, I'm conscious of his kind of slightly wet nose on me. <laughs> For the moment, though, he's um, he's curled up on a sort of big dog cushion thing under the table um, at my feet. And I'm sitting opposite Sophie at the kitchen table. And I have a glass of red wine, as usual. Um, and Sophie has a glass of Bailey's, which um, someone that didn't know her that well might take as a, a seasonal thing, a Christmas thing. But in fact... Sophie is someone that drinks Bailey's most of the year. Uh, right. Well, she doesn't drink that much at all of anything. But were she to have a drink, it would often be a Bailey's, even um, away from Christmas. When I drink, it's Bailey's. Mm. When you drink, it's beer or Bailey's. And only one of those is seen as a normal drink for someone <laughs> in their 30s. Beer and there's no Bailey's. Yeah. <laughs> Bailey's is your go to. That's. I mean, how do we even. For people who don't know, this is a tradition we have. We've had for quite a while now. Yes, I was trying to think whether this is the third or fourth time in a row that we've done it at the turn of the year. But um, either way, it's become a kind of a regular milestone. Yeah. Do you remember the very, very, very first time you did Mopad? Well, yeah, although they've become jumbled up a bit in my head because it hasn't only been at the turn of the year, has it? No, I think the first one was just a normal normal chat. Um, So... Yeah, I do remember it. But when I try to remember what we talked about, I'm not sure if I am remembering the uh, the right one. I remember we talked about how you were pretty much incapable of doing nothing, of yes. just sitting and existing without anything else happening. Yeah, that sounds So with true. that, I would like to ask you, how was your 2020? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the strangest things for me was that uh, and everybody experienced their own strangeness, of course, in 2020. Um, but I, I think most people fell into one of two categories. Either I've got nothing to do. Everything stopped. I am, um, bored. My life is empty. You saw quite a bit of that on social media. And then I have even more to do. I'm trying to hold my life together. I now have to look after this person or accomplish this thing that is now more difficult. And I was in the second category, basically. I became, if anything, more busy because, for a start, the schools were closed for long periods. I had uh, responsibility for my kids and their educational development for several months at a time. Um, so I was a teacher on top of still trying to be a comedian. Um, and I was also, well, my, my partner and I were also trying to continue to organise gigs, online gigs, um even these driving ones with cars and, and stuff. And the business relied on, you know, doing more podcasts. And, and I was trying to write and stay creatively active to um, to deal with it, really, because that is sort of the way I do things. I have remained incapable of doing nothing. So when a massive opportunity came along for the world to do nothing, I, I reacted to that by just trying to do even more stuff. But then, as I say, some of that was forced on me anyway, um, like the extra parenting so one of the oddest things for me was that um like everyone else i've come to the end of 2020 with this sensation that most of it kind of never happened that most of it was just stuff getting cancelled and taken away and and this odd sort of non-year with no festivals no no summer no no football for a long period no you know and yet 
I'll also look back on it as a time when I was busier than, or at least more, had more stuff on me than, yeah, most of my life up to that point. And there were times when I found it really strange and difficult to relate to people that were complaining about boredom. I got it, of course, because like loads of comedians uh, who rely solely on doing gigs in clubs and stuff, that just wasn't there anymore. But I think because my mentality is like, well, what are we doing instead? How do we solve this? Which is quite a male mentality and not necessarily healthy, but it is what I wanted to do. And also just for me, I'm like, well, what, what can I write? What can I, how can I be active? The gym is closed. Where can I run that won't be cold? Like, because my brain was constantly racing to try to navigate a path through it, I couldn't understand people who were tweeting going, for the fifth day in a row, I have done nothing. Of course, I do understand it. I empathize with it. It was an, many people's emotional response to it was stuff has just shut down. I'm going to shut down. But as you know, I don't really function like that. Oh, there we go. So that's a good example of a <laughs> unexpected noise from the dog who has heard something. He's reacting to something he heard outside, I think, because he, we're, we're both prone to anxiety. So we both jump. When uh, yeah, I, I jumped a long way in the air. <laughs> it wasn't even that loud, but he, he it's barked and he, he started yeah. prowling with intent towards the door, but he seems to be happy that whatever <laughs> danger was there has passed. Um, in my experience, this happens a few times per per yeah. uh, visit with Hank, <laughs> and sometimes you're the threat, and that's <laughs> you as in me. Um, so yeah, it was. A, I think you know. Um, I reacted to the year, uh, as you might imagine, knowing me well, that I would have done, which was to become even more active and um, determined and yeah busy but that drove a bit of a wedge between me and people who weren't doing oh, i was gonna say i do understand it because a lot of people were just overwhelmed by the um emptiness and by the suspension of everything and the strangeness of it i completely understood um and i think i'm lucky in a way that my my creative impulse is just to go into overdrive in times when things are difficult and weird whereas other people's impulse is just to totally um well, I think like, Shut off. it's two extremes, isn't it? One is being incapable of uh, sitting still and the other is being completely incapable of doing anything. And I think the, yeah. the healthy sort of not broken brain reaction is to be able to do both. In the middle somewhere would, yeah. be, would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Or, or a bit of both. Yeah, and I don't think that, you know, I have to, I have to accept however many years, three or four years on from that first discussion, it is still true to say that I'm incapable of doing nothing. And as a result, I did not take the opportunity which the pandemic um, presumably presented of sitting back, taking stock. I did do some of this, of course, reflecting on what I wanted and what I could live with and without and so on. Because you couldn't not do that because there were so many days when the thing you were meant to be doing didn't happen. So I, I did use the thinking time in some ways, but I have struggled to buy into this idea um, which will be held by plenty of people listening to this. And it's not, I don't think there's any, any truth in the idea, but yeah, a lot of people have gone, made the leap from saying, oh, this is weird, a few months now without stuff happening, to saying what this shows is that the the whole world and the whole way of life was wrong to start with, and we must now take this opportunity to absolutely transform everything. The um, Extinction Rebellion thing is a good example. Um, around where I live, there's, there's a lot of, there's always been a lot of, you know, uh, climate change related graffiti and stuff, very, which I'm supportive of. But very early in the pandemic, those guys' message started shifting to almost like, I told you so. The world was already screwed. We screwed it. Now we've got to, we've got to uh, start from scratch. This is a, you know, this idea that this is, a, this has been either sent by the universe or is just an inevitable consequence of our habits and that we 
have to rip up everything that was normality and start again is I do understand it. In the case of stuff like climate change, that probably is based on good, you know, logic, really. Um, in the case of capitalism, there, there are loads of reasons why it is probably right to say this should be a clean slate from now on. But I have struggled with that idea because I liked loads of stuff that we had nine months ago and I want loads of it back. Well, it sounds like it's again a case of the extreme versus yeah. something in moderation. Y- like, yeah. Sure, yeah, it does say some things about some of the way we lived, but that does mean that everything was the worst. Yeah, and to be fair, if you're like painting a logo on a pavement, you probably won't get all the nuance in. You probably will go for a slogan. Um, <laughs> and, but the, and the trouble is, and... We've talked about this plenty. I, I am a big defender of Twitter and social media in, in certain ways. Um, but there's no doubt that often Twitter discourse is also the equivalent of communicating by just painting stuff on walls and then waiting for the other person to shit on your painting. You know, so much of Twitter's response to... And I find it really helpful in a lot of ways. I think the sense of community that you get online... You, you try to imagine this kind of situation 30 years ago without all this, without texting, even without any of it... And it really would have been extremely difficult, I think. I think that online contact with people has helped an enormous number of people get through this. But as I have already remarked to you, the people with the worst opinions have found ways of having bad opinions about this as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed. I, I've been thinking about a lot the past couple of days to people who, um, who who want to believe that it's fake, that it doesn't exist. I just don't understand. Yeah. I, what I don't understand is how it's connected to... Like the political sides? Yeah. Like I don't understand how it's mainly right-wing people who don't believe in the coronavirus. That doesn't... There's no political stuff around the virus, right? It is interesting, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the only way I can link it, that kind of conspiracy theory stream to right-wing thinking is there's that branch of right-wing thought that's like, basically all government is bad. Any attempt to impose any control on us is bad the kind of like oh you know so there's but, an, but you could couch this as like this is an opportunity this is an attempt by the government to interfere more with our lives and oh right so it's more like liberalism in the sense of no yeah libertarianism i suppose yeah. it might be called or this idea that no one should meddle with anything. Yeah, it's confusing, of but then course. Then why but, are they supporting Trump so much? Because, well, yeah, this is the thing. Extreme right-wing governments, uh, like fascist governments we've had in the past, have tended to uh, exert quite a lot of control over their citizens, for example, by um, imprisoning and killing them, as have very extreme left-wing governments. This is the thing. Attempts by governments to suppress humanity have tended to go beyond actual ideologies of left and right. They're just about... Uh, crazy oh, yeah. dictators but they're about power yeah um but yeah the thing with trumpism is it you know because it is based uh, around the personality of a, a weird not very intelligent guy it doesn't really add up internally like if you think that the if you think the covid is a complete hoax then you you presumably just want everything to go back to normal and we don't pay any attention to it but Many of the people who support Trump also want enormous changes to control the lives of the people that they don't like or don't like. Yeah. So you start to not be able to find any inner coherence to it. It's just the politics of there's some guys I don't like and this guy also doesn't like them. So that'll do. <laughs> but I agree with you. It's been really odd to try to understand. I understand the point of view that too much of our lives have been affect- like shut down, that we've been that we've been too cautious, that we haven't 
you know, the, the stuff has been taken away from us, which didn't need to. And I personally understand that because there's been loads of times where a gig was cancelled that I tried to put on or, you know, a, a birthday party, a fr- things I've organised haven't been allowed to happen. And being human, I've had the thought, yeah, but we could have done that. And almost certainly it would have been fine. And if enough people think like that, then you start to get a movement of people going, Oh, loads of these precautions aren't necessary and it's not a very big step from that to thinking so why are they doing this to us then but it's strange it's a mistake to think that <laughs> like yeah. even if we've mishandled this and even if even if we have dramatically overestimated how bad COVID is and, and we are being massively overcautious that's still not the same as saying that it's just not happening and that kind of cognitive dissonance leads to a situation like we had this weekend for new year where I saw on Twitter people outside, like video of people on a hospital, outside the hospital chanting, COVID is a hoax, COVID is a hoax. <laughs> While doctors and nurses were coming out off shift, having spent hours with, you know, ill and dying patients. What would you get out of uh, that? What, and, I mean, even if you believed it was a hoax, what would you get out of shouting it at a hospital? You'd have to be drunk and or mad because, yeah, yeah what, you, what do you hope to gain what, by no bullying gonna, people as they yeah. show up to work in a hospital? What were they imagining like, that the doctors would come out and go, yeah. Put their hands up and say, you got us. You got us. <laughs> you it's got us. Hoax. It's very, very strange. And there are lots of versions of the this is a hoax thing. But, um, well, apart from anything else, you'd need to explain why all of the world's governments have teamed up to do this when it isn't in the interest of any country. Uh, nobody's economy has come out of this well. All of it every country has citizens that are unhappy like this has been bad no one's won out of this apart from that guy joe wicks that does the exercises <laughs> and a few people that are really good at doing impersonations of tv stuff on on twitter <laughs> like the, so it's it's yeah when you hear that, that this is some sort of conspiracy you have to ask for, for whose benefit for pharmaceutical companies benefit not really because it's taken a year to even get a vaccine and we still don't have it, at the, really. At the t- like, and they're not reacting the same way when pharmacy pharmaceutical companies actually do make us believe that we need the drugs we don't need. Yeah, pharmaceutical companies have always done that. Yeah. They, they can do that without having to <laughs> shut most of their customer base down. I, it's hard to see really who gains from this if it is a conspiracy, unless you believe, just in a vague way, that the man wants to control us, that this is all control. You know, often when you see, you'll see tw- memes and stuff that are like, this is not about a disease. This is about control. And you try and drill down into it. it. As far as I can tell, it doesn't mean much more than than I don't like being told that I can't go to places. And now I can't. And, you know, I don't like it either. I love traveling. I love we've all lost a lot of stuff that we and it is often tempting to think, well, shit, really, is it necessary to um to have done all this? But you can also make a case that um we haven't done quite enough really because in countries like well say in victoria in australia where it has been brought under control quite well um it was because they just did it hardcore for a period an agreed period whereas we we appear to have you know danced in and out of these restrictions kind of forever and it's been really draining i i think if i'd been asked at the start of this would you support a i don't know 12 or 16 week total suspension of everything i would have said no that would be fucking awful um but that definitely would have been better than nine months of a bit of restrictions and a bit mm. like even even when like when the pubs reopened but with the you had to eat food as well as even me someone who loves going to the pub and likes to just sit in a pub and work there for an afternoon or even just for an hour or uh, even someone like me thought well are you, are you sure <laughs> 
and inevitably within another two weeks the pubs were shut again and stuff like that of course it's important to keep businesses open and support them and stuff but like the 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 way the rules have been um have shifted over the past two or three months suggests that there's absolutely no plan and that just makes people angrier but again again it doesn't point to a hoax because quite obviously boris johnson and the government haven't got any idea what to do (laughs) they'd love it to be over (laughs) you it was this it was 2020 you turned 40 it was in february and uh, it feels like ages ago it's really weird yeah most people have a memory of um a party or event or show whatever it is that was their last thing before the world went mad but in my case um it was already a landmark it was like this is my 40th most not all but most of the people that i love in the world are here um at least a decent cross-section of them are and you know i felt i felt very i even put an instagram post up (laughs) um of me looking happy something which as you know i've only ever done about 50 instagram posts in my life uh and the the um like birthday sentimental text just said this is all I could have asked for to feel this loved and to reach this point in my life and be happy that kind of thing and none of it I don't regret it because all of it was true and most of it I suppose still applies but it still it's the sort of thing you look back on even two months later and think hmm (laughs) that does feel as tempting fate a little bit well the reason one of the reasons that we do this every year is because you like me uh we like the sort of mom- the big moments where we can reflect and think yeah. about changes and like how we're gonna. So you basically had a big moment where you could do that, and then, like the next month, you had to sort of be forced into a situation that was yeah kind of shook you out of that. I had the traditional start of year thing that you and I have of like, so here we are. What do we want from this year? What do we think of the last year? Then a month after that, February, middle of February yeah this extra reset of like you're now in your 40s what does that mean what do you want and then yeah by the middle of march it was uh, doesn't matter how old you are or what year it is <laughs> there's nothing happens anymore so yeah very strange i think that i mean this whatever stage of life you're at this has been very very weird but it was certainly quite odd for me to and the one thing that happens when you're 40 like with any landmark birthday is people who are slightly older say Oh, I, this is, I've loved my 40s. It's been a great time of my life. Richard Osman, in fact, a former my podcast, was close to 10 years ahead of me. Like He turns 50, I think, soon, or maybe he just has or something. So he sent me a text from the other end of his 40s, you know, saying this is not a text, a, a tweet, um, saying, you know, that it was a, it's been a good time for me. This happened, that happened. Several people did that who would... Um, and again, that is the sort of thing which makes you think, all right, this is a new phase. How do I approach it? And once again, all of those calculations became meaningless because like everyone else, I was just flailing around by the middle of the year. So I have had an odd time where I is now approaching my, my 41st birthday and the first year of this decade of my life has been spent uh, not doing almost all of the things that I... Not That's not quite true. I've still been productive and I've been writing and things like that. But yeah, for, for 40 being such a significant feeling age it is a bit odd to have it as the weirdest year of your life so far which it definitely has been and i can only imagine it has been for anyone i was out in the garden with my son who's now 10 um on the last night of the year which is something i like to do watch it go dark for the last time and just look across to all the lights and stuff there were already fireworks you can hear uh, and see fireworks for a long way around and people had started it as soon as it got dark as they do not just at new year but as I mentioned on Twitter, almost every day, (laughs) 
because some people are much, much more into fireworks than me. That's been a lesson of the last few years. Um, and my, my, the boy said, has this been the strangest year that humans have ever had? Um, and I said, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, I suppose the war, it was kind of similar thing of people being plunged into the second world war, at least a situation that had never affected the lives of, but certainly since the forties, I had to say to him and also, and I know there's been plagues and there's been all sorts of stuff in the past, but I had to say to him, it was one of the most unusual years that humanity had, would ever record. And that he had as a kid lived through something which people would talk about without doubt for, for the rest of the century. Yeah. <laughs> and it was almost good to think that, to be able to say to him, well, I know this year has been a bit shit, but like you, uh, one of your formative years was also uh, an unforgettable year for humanity. <laughs> um, y- your book came out. That was also that. Context. It, it wasn't quite as big a, a news story as all the um, the other stuff. So, and this is not a spoiler. The book touches on suicide. Yes. Uh, some yeah. Wanting to uh, to kill themselves, and. And I don't know if this is overstepping this question, but you've talked about before how you've struggled in the past. You've, uh-huh. you know, a lot of this is based on feelings you've had yourself. Yeah. And I feel like in the beginning when I heard you talk about the book, you did talk about this. And then in the more recent times when I've heard you talk about it, you refer to it almost as a, oh, I just wanted to talk about this topic <laughs> a bit without any connection to myself. I think it's because... um Mm, yeah, I I think it's because the um the book is about um like the, well the character in the book is is experiences um not just suicidal thoughts he has a suicidal plan which is again slightly further than I ever, that's part of it I think the book describes someone that is really on the cusp of dying by suicide like he plans to do it within the next twelve hours and that doesn't precisely mirror my experience which was more that i uh toyed with the idea a number of separate times over a, a period of a couple of years um and so i think that it, part of it is just is that basic it's that y- you start to be wary of people thinking that um the novel is literally an autobiographical thing because that's easy for people to think that especially if you're a stand-up stand-ups largely we do talk about stuff we've done so it's understandable that someone would pick up a novel by me and think so this is basically him and then start thinking i wonder who that friend is or whatever so i think it's partly that i started to and and i think it maybe it's also that um a good pr angle of course for the book is so uh this book's about a suicide guy was this you and because that question started to come up a lot I did a lot of interviews, which were like, so tell me about the time you were incredibly depressed. And I started to find that just psychologically tiring. Um, I also didn't want necessarily it to be heard by loved ones and stuff, but no, it was more about me. It was, it was about me just getting weary because it's fine for me and you to talk about it because you're one of my closest friends. And because this is a proper in-depth conversation, it's weird to be on live national radio and someone says, so the book's about mental health. You've had bad mental health. Can we talk about that? So I think maybe I just shut some of those questions down rather than trying to do um, sound bites about it. Also, there's a weird thing where, which I think I've said to you before, but when you are in bad, really bad mental um, weather conditions, you, you can't really write about them. So the, the period that was worse for me is now five or six years distant. So, and I can really access that emotion very easily. I can still feel how it felt, 
but it doesn't quite feel like me in the same way um, b- because it's, I'm a different version of myself. So I suppose it's also partly that. Like a couple of people tweeted me kindly saying, um, just reading your book and it, it makes me think, hope you're all right. And you can't help thinking, well, yeah, I am. But actually, uh, the time to send me this tweet was in 2015. Not that they could possibly have known that. But that's the funny thing about a book. You wouldn't write a book to express anything that you urgently needed to get out there. Because as you know yourself, there is a lag of about 18 months. <laughs> I find it kind of touching that a few people did interpret it as a sort of cry for help. Because it meant that I'd stirred something in them. and you know. But I also found it funny because... Uh, writing and publishing a book is the longest process in the world. So if anybody was looking to be talked out of a suicide, I don't recommend doing it by getting a novel out. <laughs> but did you, when you wrote it, you ch- channeled how you'd felt at I, the time? Yeah, I think so, for sure. And um, it certainly is the book that's got the most of the novel that is that I've written that's got the most of my experiences in. Um, I talked um, to someone else about this. It was the Chortle Book Festival, I think. I was, interviewed about it and um the and i was saying and i think it's true that when i used to write novels which is now quite a while ago i began you know like more than 15 years ago um i was much more keen on like trickery and just writing novels that were flashy in some way stylistically like came from an interesting um had an interesting narrative voice or angle or did something weird or whatever um because I, I maybe felt like it was almost cheating to just write about my stuff or or I wanted to distance myself from it. I wanted it to be whatever the, my reasons. I, d- I deliberately wrote about stuff that was quite distant from my own experience for years. And as you get older, I think you get less wrapped up in the idea of um, is this a cool, striking novel and more just like can I tell a story that uh, will really get people? And the best way to do that probably is to write about stuff you have thought and felt yourself. People talk about writing what you know a lot. You hear it all the time. Write what you know. And it's a bit of a misleading tip because it suggests that um, that if you're a, uh, you work in a bank like, and watch films at night, then you should write a novel about someone who works in a bank and watch films at night. And there are loads of really, really boring books and films, in fact, because people have taken it too literally and been like, let's do a book about the exact things I... And there's a reason why... That isn't already a novel. It's because it isn't that interesting. <laughs> but there is a, a there is an obvious truth that um, you should write about things that emotionally preoccupy you, rather than imagining what might be interesting to someone else and trying to write about that. It took me a long time to learn that. Um, well, because it's more difficult to write about your own stuff, um, and also because you do, as a writer, think about what people are going to want. Like, um, I've looked at, I, for ages, I didn't look at the Amazon reviews of the book b- because I prefer never to do that with anything really. I don't mind reading reviews of comedy, oddly, but I'm more sensitive about the book just because it takes so much more time and love to put it together. Um, but now and again, I would check just the average star rating and stuff because unfortunately people do attach quite a lot of importance to that. And the average is high now. So even if people write shitty mean things, they won't. Um, they won't take the score down <laughs> by more than a couple of percentage points. But yeah, the the few people who who have um, hated it, Amazon, uh, 
which I forced myself to read along the good, alongside the good ones, is often I thought this was going to be fun. And it mm-hmm. wasn't. You're a comedian. This is not fun. Even a couple of interviewers would understandably would say, "So um, you're a comedian, but this does this doesn't sound like uh, a light read." I'm like, well, no, it's not. Um, I mean, but it actually is quite a light-hearted novel as a novel about suicide goes. It's relatively unserious in tone, but. Um, that's the thing. It's quite easy to think, well, no one really wants to read a book about that. And then you're screwed. You have to write about what you care about and want to talk about, not what you think might um, appeal to people. And lots of people have responded really nicely to this book. I've had far more reaction to it than I would normally expect from a novel, I think because of the emotional content. But um, yeah, the cost of that is you have to dig deeper into yourself. Also, it is kind of the a book that really digs into the core of me and I'm struggling to think of what to do next but I've got ideas for other novels in fact a couple that I've worked on for a long time but because they're not as personal to me as this idea it now feels like well where do I go it feels odd to go back from that in a way did you when you were going through you said five or six years ago did you feel alone with it or did you, were you aware that a lot of people felt the same way um um yeah, I mean, I there were there were people, and I didn't know you, odd as that seems, um, and I wasn't with my uh, current partner. And there, there are a handful of really key figures in my life who I didn't know, which I often say to people that are younger than me that are struggling. Like my life's changed quite a bit between thirty-five and forty. So, like, if you're twenty-four and you think everything's fucked, you. It sounds patronising, but there's so much to come. There's so much to come. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, I could meet uh, more people between like 45 and 50. You know, you never stop meeting people who change you and change your life. Um, and some of those people were yet to figure really, or at least I hadn't got properly known. But, uh, but even then, I was never properly as alone as the character feels in the novel because I did have a couple of extremely loyal and long-standing friends. Um, I, the trouble is that you, you start to, I know you, well, I wasn't seeing them regularly for a start. That's part of it. And, but also you, you do start to feel, um, like you're boring yourself almost. There are only so many times you can talk to somebody about feeling bad before you start thinking, well, this isn't, um, this isn't fun. Not for me, not for you really. And, I was obviously aware that loads of people out there were um, uh, depressed, miserable in all sorts, or lonely, all of it, in different ways. Um, but one of the cool things about depression is that it does wrap you up in yourself quite a bit, really. It's not much comfort to think of other people that are also sad. <laughs> if I, I mean, I, I did have a couple of friends who were not exactly going through similar things, but at least weren't happy in that. I suppose helped and these days I'm able to reach out and help I have friends who are now going through in many different ways versions of some of the stuff that I had five years ago and I I really value the fact that I can sometimes help people purely because I've really had that experience Um, but but yeah when you're in the middle of it you don't really you um, you don't feel as if there are many people you can talk to and you, you don't feel as if you have much to say. Even that's the other thing, of course. It's very difficult to actually articulate why things are bad. 
beyond just like I feel and I knew why they were bad as well I wasn't depressed in any sort of a vacuum I, I had loads of difficulties in my life that needed to be unpicked and I knew that um and I, which is the other thing probably I knew that there was a version of life that could be better but I couldn't see how to get there so a lot of discussions that I could have with people I didn't feel like it was worth it because they would tell me well you need to solve this this and this and I didn't really feel like I could do that or want to also the idea of um, I, oh, lots of people struggle with their mental health. Lots of people are depressed. There are places you can go. There are people you can talk to. Again, none of that was much comfort because I don't know. Maybe it's ego, but I think that if you feel very depressed, you, partly you feel as if nobody can get to you and no one can really understand what your problem is and that your problems are a unique set of problems. People saying depression is common. Everyone has it at some point. C- can sound to you like, ah, oh, you're just one of these guys that like this is a th- you know you you. It, it feels like an insult to the uniqueness of your problems, whether that is true or not. So I think that was it. Well, like the character in the book doesn't see himself as a depressed person. He's called the Samaritans once. He's never had therapy or anything like that. He because that's the thing. I didn't want to write about somebody who believed that they had a history of depression. I wanted to write about one of the many people who go about their business depressed without having the tools to necessarily deal with that. And I think that's what I was, even though I had the emotional intelligence and I understood depression as a phenomenon. Uh, and I had certain resources that could help me. I just didn't want to be a guy that, that had depression and, um, which meant that even though I, I, there could have been a million people on Twitter going, reach out, talk to someone, help. Here's what helped me. Here are some tips. And I would have resisted all of it. I see a lot of that on social media. There's so much writing about depression tips, mental health tips, and loads of it's really valuable. But some, sometimes I think, God, I wouldn't have responded to, I didn't respond to any of this when I was depressed. I, I wanted something else. So what was the turning point? And you don't have to, obviously it's all complicated and involves other people and stuff. Yeah. So you don't have to say specifics, but in terms of mentality, were you, was it, was it a shift in your brain or just, were you just forced into the change by circumstances? It was partly that circumstances forced me to change. Um, my, my family circumstances changed my, um, like relationships, a lot of stuff changed, uh, enough stuff changed to force me to react and then everything started to change i suppose so partly life just sort of gave me a helping hand in a, in a quite painful way but um which is another thing i sometimes say to um, unhappy people there's a lot of focus on what you can do to get out of it but um there are also times in life where you literally need to sit tight and uh i mean if i use phrases like let the universe help you or direct you or whatever it will sound as if i you know believe in things that i don't necessarily I, I don't mean it in a supernatural way but i do think that just luck and changing seasons and loads of stuff is way beyond your control i, I say this to people a lot so often you feel as if you're doing something wrong but it's more that just things haven't been going your way and that's not a permanent state so partly i needed to just r- stay on the ride until it got better <clears throat> um but also partly if there's if i could summarize the mental process i'd say that I'd been living in a way where, that was quite far away from who I wanted to be and how I wanted my life to be. And in order to be happy, um, I think it's, it's a bit of a big generalization, but I think it's fair to say in order to be happy in life, you need to live as closely as possible to a version of yourself that you, that you want to exist. You cannot live, um, trying to please other people or live up to a, a, an idea or a standard which someone else has set. I had spent a lot of time doing that. 
So things getting better for me coincided with me taking ownership of what I actually wanted from life, even if that was unpopular or difficult to get and trying to um, get more of it. And it's funny, I, we talk about this sometimes, that some of the most fundamental truths of life are so familiar that you just don't think or care about them anymore. Um, like the um, coffee shop that I go to here, has this chalkboard where they put like inspirational messages up and a lot of them are massively over familiar, like, and some of them feel banal or like there was one a couple of days ago that said, thank you 2020 for all the lessons in patience that you've taught us or something. I couldn't work out if it was a joke (laughs) or not, but I think it's very generous to thank 2020. (laughs) Um, But every now and again, there's one which like, for example, do more of what makes you happy, which is, you know, a phrase that you'll see on, like t-shirts and shit facebook memes and uh i mean i've seen that so often and that almost nothing happens in your brain when you read that sentence and yet it would be harder to express a truer thing about being alive i think and these days i do do more of what uh, makes me happy and of course sometimes that's at the expense of other people and you need to negotiate that um sometimes it's you know, there are loads of ways in which pursuing what makes you happy have has pitfalls or dangers, but pretty much it does feel like the way to live, I think. And so it's sort of wasted on a thing that you see outside a cafe or in <laughs> you know, that should be it should, every now and again. I think about that phrase or phrases like it, like to live properly, you need to be the, the most yourself that you can be. All versions of that truth, I think, uh, I remind myself of constantly, but again, they're so familiar that, and you know, you and I are always swapping tweets and things where people have just tweeted incredibly um hackneyed shit and got 23 billion retweets and stuff and we're both furious (laughs) but um but the reason it works is because these truths are things we need to hear it's just we're annoyed that other people are mining them for new followers (laughs) (laughs) because we have too much yeah we have too much shame to do it ourselves because we yeah we don't want other people to send our tweets to each other because exactly probably our biggest fear is being someone that another person would (laughs) screenshot and go look at this prey (laughs) and that pride that conceited approach to social media and life stops us from um being mainstream superstars (laughs) that and only that Mm -hmm. Um, it's purely attitude I, Not talent. At, at one point, um, like I'll obviously ask you to plug things and stuff at the end, but uh, and we're going to do a two part so we're going to talk about the future yeah. in, the, in the next part. I hope we don't get it as wrong as we did the last time we tried to predict the future, which was oh like, yeah. <laughs> I don't, All I wanted was a little pandemic. Yeah, I don't think I look ahead to twenty twenty was entirely accurate or helpful in the end. <laughs> Let's not jinx it. Uh, you also launched a podcast called Mankind, which I'll, mm, yeah. I'll I want to talk to you about. Um, when you plug it but just because it's about masculinity and a lot of other things when you do talk about the sort of difficulties and and having gone through all this how much did masculinity play a role and are you more or less aware of that now that you've started this podcast well i think um i think perhaps one of the biggest um this is going to sound pretty spoiled, really, or privileged, but one of the biggest obstacles to me wasn't uh, to me recovering or dealing well with my mental health. I, it wasn't just that I was, it wasn't just about being a man or being uh, all about masculinity and its expectations. It was a package of things that I had in my favor 
like um you know i'm a, I'm a straight white guy the first born child in my family went to um very well known university like did, did very well at school are you, are you trying specifically not to say cambridge yeah because it's so unpopular these days if you went to cambridge or oxford um but yes cambridge which was doing well at the time as a See, university you're oppressed you can't even yeah yeah, yeah. you can't even yeah. say where you went to school it is the oldest form of oppression people being furious that you had a good university career um and all of those things um and and then also was successful early in life, really. Like I did well and I was, uh, I had a certain amount of status and money by the time I was like 26, um, was also married. So basically I had a very, very, um, it was a textbook example of someone that like appears to have it all, as they say. And, um, and being a, being a man is definitely part of that because if I'd done all of that, but still been a woman, um, I still wouldn't have had as easy a time of it as it wasn't an easy time. I worked hard for what I got. I, you know, and I, there were loads of ups and downs, but I was coming from a core place of, yeah, things have gone great. And what is going to stop me? And as you know, I'm not a person to instinctively think like that. I had, I was in touch with the idea that I, you know, was privileged, uh, by contrast to other people, even before we had that language, but the language already existed, but even before everyone was talking about, um, what years before I had heard the phrase check your privilege, I was aware that I was privileged at least on some level, but nonetheless, um, I, I did have this feeling of like, well, things are going to, yeah, things are going to be fine because bet- between my luck and my circumstances and what talent I have and how hard I work, things are really well set up here. So I think it's that it meant that when things went badly for me, when things started to really, go badly there was this kind of shame for me and like how have I drifted so far from everything being great uh, you know from being someone that my mum was like so delighted with everything there's a lot of that in it a lot of like again not a specifically masculine thing this but you know as a, as a firstborn son the, the golden boy you, there were a lot of boxes I ticked which it felt almost humiliating to have to untick them and say oh things are not in fact going so well and of course the answer is nothing ever was perfect and golden because life isn't like that the reason there are so many stories like he had it all where did it all go wrong obviously the answer is no he didn't have it all he he was busting a lung to make it look like he had it all or convince himself or there are very understandable reasons why anybody's seemingly perfect life goes to hell we all know that but when it's you still you feel like the character in the film that everyone is watching like through their fingers going shit you idiot especially because i was making bad decisions that i knew were bad decisions and just couldn't get out of it again just like someone does (laughs) in ozark or something (laughs) so i think and that's so that's not all about masculinity but there's definitely a male pride thing of like i was never an alpha male by disposition or appearance or being able to fight people but i definitely had an alpha male position in my late 20s of like yeah i have a wife we're gonna have kids probably i have a house already because I happen to have been good at comedy at the same time as property is affordable, all this. <laughs> and so part of part of being able to let go and saying, I'm not happy, I've done this wrong, it's just an enormous wound to your pride. And I do think that is tied in with some masculinity. It's really difficult to generalise. That's something I've learned from the podcast, because for a start, being a man means so many different things, even within that category. But So explain the podcast. Oh, the podcast is uh, me and the guy called Michael Chakverti, um 
from the Bake Off. He's also done this podcast before. Of course, so he people has, might yeah. recognize him from that. He was. He is a really interesting, intelligent man who, uh, and he, but he, well, he became famous by being on the Bake Off. But specifically, he got a lot of attention because he cried on the Bake Off because um, pastry went wrong or something, you know, <laughs> some bollocks, <laughs> and. Um, he got loads of abuse for that, apparently. And I wasn't really conscious of this. I did watch it, but I, I didn't really I didn't know that all this happening. So as a result of that, he became very interested in the pressures that are on uh, men or, you know, masculinity and people. And so it was his idea to do a podcast that explored masculinity. And um, I thought it was a good idea because he's gay for a start. And also, although he doesn't really look at um, Brown and um, comes from a totally different sphere of experience from me so i knew i would learn stuff just from talking to him um and the guests have almost all been people with we have had a couple of straight men but most of them have been either gay or trans or non-binary or have some other approach to the idea of uh, gender and sex that i wouldn't necessarily have heard of three years ago <laughs> so um so that's been really interesting for me with the exception of you because we've had various like podcast ideas which will hopefully come to fruition um in the coming year since we still can't go and do anything else <laughs> uh, but apart from you i've never really wanted to do a podcast with anyone that much because as i've said to you before i would need to feel like i had something to contribute that was new and there are already millions of people doing podcasts about for example football or other sports or anything that i feel like i know about actually there's not that many podcasts about Chaucer in Middle English poetry, I don't think, but I'm not. I'm not sure if the. I feel like that's a reason for it. Yeah, <laughs> that's my other unfortunate speciality. Uh, but with this, it's the other way round. I don't have to contribute anything that people don't really know about. I am learning. I'm listening. I don't think it occurred to me that. I suppose it's similar for you. If you get a podcast set up nicely, then it, it, it's more about. It's as much about what you get out of meeting people mm. as it is about what you have to say. I think because oh, yeah. of what men. And male comics, and just all comics, really, alike. I always felt like, well, what's the point of doing a podcast unless there's something that I can be amazingly funny about? <laughs> but it's weirdly become a kind of just opportunity for me. Almost all of them are people I would have been a, a, probably not have ever met or spoken to or even known existed in some cases. Um, so that's been really good. And it has, it's made me think about the many different ways uh, that you can be a man or, or be masculine or, um, and, but also, Michael's quite a bit younger than me, and um, and than, even than you. I think he's 27 or something. So that's been valuable. I've said this before, but one of the things I most want as I get older is um, to remain engaged with the brains of younger people who, as they reshape the world, which is an inevitable process. And if you resist it, then eventually you just you don't matter anymore. You just you know I've said this on stage like when you get like old men in their 60s that are slagging off well in your 60s isn't old but hmm. old acting men in their 60s 70s who are like massively anti Greta Thunberg or whoever they see a 21 year old affecting change and they're like this spoiled schoolgirl this idiot. all they really mean is I don't understand why 21 year olds are now in charge but they always will be Billie Eilish is is very much more influential than I ever will be <laughs> <laughs> even though like the, like the year she was born I can remember you know that only intensifies as you get older. So it's really important. You can either just get stuck in your version of the world or you can have the sort of liquidity of brain, which means you're constantly adapting. And I want to be able to constantly adapt to the way 
uh, the world is remodeled. So it's really valuable to me because a lot of the guests are themselves are in their twenties or considerably younger than me. Um, so yeah, the podcast has worked out really well for me because basically I sit and listen to and am educated by people that have gone through a lot of life experiences that I haven't had. And every now and again, I say something, um, funny because it's got a bit dark and that's basically <laughs> my job. <laughs> or I take the piss out of my call for his baking or something. I'm sort of like, a, I'm a, a sidekick. <laughs> But Michael's also a sidekick. The pod, like your podcast, the podcast is about the actual the person talking, and it's a real listening exercise. I'll um, we'll end this bit now. Yes, I will pluck the shit out of the podcast in the in the bit that comes for people listening now. Yeah. The bit that comes the bit. now when so afterwards soon. Um, if you want to summarize twenty twenty. Well, yeah, it was, I mean, 2020 was a really bad year for basically everyone. And I don't, as I said earlier in this chat, I don't think there's any good in going, no, the world is just a bad place and we deserve this or any of those takes. It was a shit, stupid year. Um, And that's not to say this one also won't be, but as we've discussed before, I do think that the turn of the year is important. I think that these milestones, however arbitrary, can be important. I felt kind of weirdly refreshed waking up thinking, this is now a different thing, even if nothing has really changed. And I'm hopeful that when we have this conversation in uh, exactly a year from now, we'll look back on this year as having been um, better in some ways. And I think there are loads of lessons that we can learn as humans from what's happened uh, in 2020. But I also think we should just give ourselves a bit of slack and be like, right, we deserve nice things. Let's have some nice things. And more on that in part two, which will be next week but in real life it'll be in about two minutes when i've changed the batteries (laughs) while you wait for next week's episode part two i really do recommend mark and michael's podcast mankind you'll recognize some of the guests from this podcast it's two men talking to other men and non-binary people about masculinity and going in i thought i knew exactly what it was going to be and to an extent you know i I did, as in, we know what masculinity does to men. That's not a secret. But I don't know, I wasn't expecting to feel the way that I did. Like, this wasn't for me. I took an almost filthy pleasure in being a silent witness to these conversations because they, like, because they weren't about me. And I felt quite humbled, I guess you know, realizing that there are some conversations with men that I just cannot have because I will never truly understand what it's like. In the same way as a cis man will never truly know what it's like to be a woman or to have been assigned female at birth. It's a lovely, essential, and very well-produced podcast. I highly recommend it. Mankind on all good podcast platforms. I also recommend Mark's book, Contacts. He truly is an incredible author. As a matter of fact, if you liked my book, Happy Fat, you won't be surprised to know that Mark functioned as somewhat of a, like an extra editor on it, despite, you know, being the thinnest person I've ever met. And it's just because he's so fucking talented and, you know, a dear friend of mine. So... That's enough for you to uh, get your hands on in the coming week. 
We did not record an extra bit with Mark this time, but you can still get behind the scenes recordings on Patreon. Head there now and sign up to get discount codes and my two stand-up shows for free. Also join just in order to support the podcast and help contribute to, you know, the transcripts for accessibility, the editing, the equipment, software, domains, and all the hours that go into it. And of course, to keep it ad-free. Go to mopod.com forward slash donate. That's M-O-H-P-O-D.com forward slash donate. And if you liked this episode and felt like it gave you something, like, share, retweet, give it a five-star review on Apple Podcast, tell a friend and, you know, make sure you go and say a thank you to Mark for being uh, a part of the podcast. He can mainly be found on Twitter. And a special thanks to the following Patreon heroes. This is the time where I mispronounce all of your names. Huge thank you to Amy Melody, Anastasia Graff, Andrea Kauper-Rockin, Andy Walker, Anna-Marie Hepburn, Barry Knowlton, Beth Payton, Cherry Windsor, Claire Fletcher, Daniel Reifershe, Daniel Johnson, Deborah Codice, Dieter Brunberg, Jensen, Emma Chan, Vanilla Dunn, Privacy, Osaurus, Aurora Teratops, Galway Cass, Georgia, uh, Harold Van Dyke, Harry Minot, Helen Jeriner, Isabel Johnston, Joe C., Catherine Williams, Katie Hatfield, Katrina Pilsen, Kirsten E., Kirsten Davidson, Lindsay Boschniak, M. Dash, Maeve Houlihan, Maury Fraser, Megan Roberts, Paul Swaddle, Pierre Fenneux, Rachel Furley, Rackdoll, Rianne Rivers, Robert Knowles, Robin Cabas, Samantha Kitson, Sarah Allett, Sarah Plumer, Sheena Machette Cole, Simon James, Victoria Greer, Victoria Layton, and Zoe Stephenson. Stephenson. Oh, I almost got it. <laughs> and if you want your name shouted out at the end of the episode, go join our Patreon and check out how. A big, big thank you to Mark for doing this uh, first part of a two-parter. Thank you to Dave Pickering for editing this episode, to Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle, and to Justine McNichol for the logo. Speak to you next Wednesday. Bye! Oh, pie.